The Legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. everyone, this is Maurizio Caschetto and welcome to a new episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Here with me today, my co-host and co-producer, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim. Hey, Maurizio. Good to see you. Good to see you too, my friend. Yeah, today we are here for a long-awaited episode dedicated to the latest John Williams soundtrack release, namely The Lost World, Jurassic Park, which has been recently reissued by La La Land Records as a 2CD limited edition with a few extra bonus tracks. To discuss this release, we are glad to have once again here with us soundtrack producer Mike Medicino. Hello, Mike. Nice to see you again. Hey, Mike. Hi, Maurizio. And hi, Tim. It's great to be back with you guys. Mm-hmm. Great. And today we have an additional guest joining the conversation. He's a longtime member of the John Williams fan community and has worked as project assistant to Mike Medicino on a number of John Williams ratios. So let's welcome on the Legacy of John Williams podcast for the first time, Jason LeBlanc. Hello, Jay. Nice to see you. Hey, Jason. Hello, Maurizio. Hello, Tim and Mike. How is everyone? It's your debut, your big debut performance with us. It's good to have you. Glad to have you, Jason. Good to be here. It's so great to have both of you here, Mike and Jason, because, uh, you know, besides the fact that we are friends in real life and, and we're bonded together by this common love for John Williams music and film music in general, um, as I said, we are here today to discuss the last word Jurassic Park reissue by La La Land Records. And we thought it would be the best chance to discuss this, but also another release from last year that wasn't the subject so far of one of our conversations. And of course, I'm talking about the remastered and expanded edition of Amistad, which was another very welcome addition in the catalog of the expanded releases from the John Williams-Steven Spielberg collaboration. So the main reason to unite these two scores in conversation, uh, besides the fact that they are both written for Steven Spielberg movies, is the fact that they were also both written in the same year, 1997, and that they present two very different sides of the composer's personality. This could be a great angle to start the discussion. So, Mike, let's start from you, and, and namely, let's start talking about the last word, because last year, La La Land Records reissued the first Jurassic Park score in a new 2CD remastered edition, and it was perhaps natural for us to expect Lost were coming sometimes. So what are the main differences from the 2016 expander release that was uh, issued on the 4CD uh, Jurassic Park box set, and how did you face the project overall this time? Well, it's always um, an interesting little conundrum when a label wants to release something that we've already put out and in this case, a 4CD set from 2016 of Jurassic Park and the Lost World together, which was sort of presented as being something definitive and up-to-date and as technically good as it could be. But when these opportunities come for me to go and revisit something, I inevitably might see one or two things that I'm not entirely happy with. And there's a variety of reasons for that. A lot of it has to do with the evolution of the technology that runs all of this and my own skill set and sort of conversations I have with other people working in the business. 
and and just uh, as time goes by, your ears get a little more finely tuned, and you just look at what other people are doing and listen. And so I would just come at it with a sort of totally open mind and just listen and see what I think. And I'll go back and look to recall the session. In this case, it wasn't that far back, but the way that the technology evolves, it a lot changes. So I'd go back and just look at what I did and then just apply what has come to me since then and say, you know what, I think maybe this reverb should be before this EQ instead of after. or It could be something as simple as that, which 99% of people wouldn't hear. But I would just always seize the opportunity to, okay, would, I, would there be some benefit in re-outputting this? In the case of dealing with high-resolution audio, I always seem to feel that, you know, there's no harm in doing that as long as the label is okay with having an updated master. Um, so that's what happened on Jurassic Park. And then subsequently, there was every reason to just apply the same sort of thinking to The Lost World. And on both projects, when you're trying to sort of resell something to a lot of people who have purchased it already, um, La La Land will always ask me, is there anything we can add? And so I'll then need to, of course, get John's people to sign off on that. But Jason has emerged as a very, very helpful confidant and associate to ask those questions because uh, he know, knows these scores and can monitor what people have said about them and will ask me to go and check something out. And uh, if I find something that's viable, n- new material, you know, we've worked together to determine if something uh, has um, is significant enough to try to present and then I'll go get it approved. So that's the case of what happened in both of it. It's a, sli- it's a, it's a slight technical upgrade, most of which is at a level that only I'm really aware of, but I think some of the some of the people out there do have very very discerning ears. I think they will also notice too something uh, just a, an adi- it could be just something like an additional warmth or clarity can sometimes come through, and uh, when we have the opportunity to get that, I kind of go for it because every project comes along. I feel like it might be the last time you get to work on it. So if you have the opportunity to revisit something, you know, why not see if you could uh, take it a step further or fix some things that weren't quite right the last time. Jurassic Park scores by John Williams are some of his most popular and most successful works and some of the most beloved of his own fans. And maybe there's sometimes the expectation that these huge popular blockbuster titles should be always available in print somehow in physical formats. Uh, So it's a very welcome release to have this new The Lost World 2CD set coming this year because because the 4CD set has been out of print for several years now, so it's great for all John Williams fans 
to have this score back in print finally. And what makes this release perhaps more enticing for fans is the fact that you added four bonus tracks at the end of disc two, uh, namely three alternates of three cues and a film version of our previously released cue. So Mike, guide us through the reasoning behind of adding this new bonus track and why those weren't presented originally in the 2016 edition. Well, I think when we did the 2016 collection of four CDs, the agenda really was to present the complete film scores in chronological order. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really pay much attention to what we would identify as early alternates, which might be the first takes of something. Okay. Not an alternate in the sense of compositions that were scrapped and let's go back and totally revisit it, you know, like the sunset cue from Star Wars or the Fortress of Solid from Superman. But just more like compositions that hadn't been fully worked out in terms of instrument balance or instrumentation and, and things like that, where they might just evolve as the conducting moves through takes five, six, seven, whatever. So um, I don't think I really gave much thought to that in 2016, even though there was the space, because I think what drove a lot of that release was the fact that earlier in 2013, there was a digital release that had the Jurassic Park 1993 soundtrack followed by an assembly of some unreleased music at the end of it. And we wanted to get it so that the whole thing was in story order. And then The Lost World being a very, very massive score, a very long score, there was a lot just to present. Just to get there was a lot. Yes. So I don't really think we were completely thinking that that felt like a big accomplishment we weren't necessarily thinking about oh well let's go now listen to the early take of every very every cue and see if there's anything interesting there but now that we have the perspective and especially since the later reissue of jurassic park last year included a reassembly of the original album because we had the space for it uh, the lost world did not afford us that opportunity but it just gets you thinking okay what else can we add and it's at that point that uh, I consulted Jason and he said, well, go and check out this, 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 and this, and he can maybe elaborate on the specifics yeah. of, uh, of what we found. Well, I think what's interesting about both Jurassic Park scores is they really stand out from all his blockbuster scores where there are no alternates. He wasn't ever asked to come back and rewrite anything other than the first 15 seconds of the, the end credits, the Lost World track. So, you know, there's no major alternates to worry about that anyone would be looking for. Right. Um, Jurassic Park, we were able to fix the mix of uh, Dennis Steele's The Embryo, which you know sounded a little different on the album compared to the film, and find one film take, but there isn't anything else. So for The Lost World, there was a theme park in uh, Orlando that uh, played music recorded for The Lost World. And fans with finely tuned antennas, as Mike has said, uh, noticed that it sounded a little different than what people knew from the album. So part of what went into work on this release was, well, let's find out what are they playing in the theme park. And it turned out to just be early takes of uh, the same cues we know. And Mike was able to figure out exactly which ones they were and uh, see if it was something worth including and something that John Williams would uh, approve of being included. So that was the case for On the Glass, Rescuing Sarah, and The Raptors Appear. For Ripples, that's a different story where the actual music you hear in the film was a little different in the middle section. It really ended up being editorial creation where the music editors took what 
the only version recorded in kind of looped parts and messed around with the mix and synth and stuff. So that had to come from the uh, the film itself because there was nothing on Sean Murphy's mixes that would have it because it was a creation for the film. Yeah, I notice in the alternate Rescuing Sarah, there's uh, certainly in the first couple of minutes, there's more kind of dinosaur drones, aren't there? Which is quite interesting. What's really interesting about Rescuing Sarah is the new alternate is the first take of the entire project. It's take number one. It's the first cue they recorded on the first day. Very cool. Wow. So much energy in that cue as well. Brilliant cue. The version of uh, Rescuing Sarah we all know was a performance edit of takes three and four. So it's so different. You can really tell how much Williams can change from the podium on the same day between takes because when I first heard it, I was like, okay, it's going to be an early take. It's going to be a little different, you know. I wonder if it's even worth including. And I couldn't believe how different it was. The totally different synth lines. And it's it's incredible how much, you know, he can change in such a short time. Well, also, um, not only changing within the space of one recording day, but this is the first day. So while most of the players will be very familiar with this whole setting of gathering for a session at Sony and playing a score with John conducting, it's still always something about the first day. You haven't been quite in this setting all together for a little bit while, and you're just so, sort of feeling your way. And the room does change, and ears change, and moods change. And so when you hear take one, you're getting a very raw state of this is the starting point. This is everybody. They haven't quite found their groove yet. And Sean Murphy would be listening to what the room is doing. And they will lay down a take, and John will go into the booth, and they'll listen back and sort of see what they got and then try to make adjustments. So that's very different from when you're really totally in the groove by day three or four. Um, so uh, you're getting sort of a, a nice little snapshot of the, the starting point for this whole process that, uh, that they all undertake when they put one of these scores down.
whatever you were mentioning earlier about you know tweaking and EQing and you know polishing uh, you know particularly I think some of the percussive cues I mean even you know the San Diego cue the spatial uh, stereophonic placement of the bongo drums are, are just terrific particularly and I think in this new release so if anyone is on the fence uh, pardon the pun uh, with uh, with, with with getting this release, I mean, absolutely, you know, the, the clarity and as as Mike and Jason were saying, and with the this new edition is for me is night and day. I think this new edition is really quite spectacular, and it is one of these scores where John Williams, as we all know and, and appreciate, whenever there's a sequel, again, no pun intended, but there's often more meat on it. I mean, Jaws two, Chamber of Secrets, you know, Empire Strikes Back, probably Exhibit A. He has a knack with sequels really just pull all the stops out, doesn't he? I mean, and I think Lost World is, is certainly no no lesser an example. I would go to this score probably more for variety and for... It's ferocious. Yes. <laughs> when I compare the scores for me, all of John's work is equally, equally, you know, you know, touched with just, you know, blessed with genius. But I prefer the Lost World score because it's much more complicated musically than the first one. Shout out certainly to the percussionists on this score because I don't. There mm. is no other John Williams score that goes this far with uh, percussion being a component of it all the way through, and the way that they must have positioned people and the way Sean placed his mics and captured this. There is just a presence to it and an, an immediateness to it that sort of transcends the idea of the music just pushing the story along and it be kind of becomes its own thing. Just the music can um, make you scared even if you don't know what any of it's about. There was some lightning in a bottle quality to this recording in particular, I think. Out of interest, Mike, and I, I can't remember if we've asked you this before, but does Sean Murphy ever ask to, to hear, you know, uh, what, you've, what you've done? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yes, he's become very, very trusting. But if I have any question, not only for uh, Williams, but also for Horner scores, mm. I, I will send samples this way just to get his okay on them. Actually, I was I was thinking about the, you know, what, what you were saying about the uniqueness of the percussion writing in the score. I mean, we hear lots of exotic percussion playing this kind of jungle grooves, uh, especially <laughs> in the action scenes. Truly unique, and what I wanted to know, Mike, was the percussion always recorded together in the same room with the orchestra, or there were separate percussion sessions for for some cues? To my knowledge, everything was together. I'm going to try to call up the musicians list in front of me. I mean, these are printed in the booklets always, but you sometimes don't see them the way I get them, which is with columns for each day. And so it tells me kind of who works. So I'm looking at that now. Um, 
it looks like any time the percussion is working, everybody else is working. And this couldn't be more different than things are certainly recorded today. But I would also say that it was already different than things were done even back in the day, because I think that most composers, I mean, the majority of composers probably prefer to, you know, record separately uh, very peculiar instrumentation like, you know, wild exotic percussions or or synthesizers and have a separate stem on, for those so they can have more control over the final mix or, or even the final dub of the movie itself. And so it's all the more marvelous to, to know about the fact that John Williams instead went the other way around and have all the percussionists uh, playing on the stage together with the whole band. Uh, and it's magnificent uh, just to, to picture yourself uh, into the, on the scoring stage imagining all those great percussionists playing those incredible grooves. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm thinking about the cue The Hunt, which is probably one of the most incredible cues that John Williams ever wrote that went unused and totally discarded in the final film. It's an incredible cue. I've never actually put up The Hunt against the movie, or if I did, I've forgotten. And to see how it, uh, how it works in place of the tracked music that went in. I do remember getting the album in 97 in that horrible cardboard dino-rama <laughs> thing um, and hearing that music and I'm th thinking, I don't remember it in the film anywhere and sure enough, it wasn't. Whenever you talk about the quality of, of the film, I mean, there are some funny moments. I, I think Pete Possilway has some great lines, you know, calling the dinosaurs and anything between Elvis or, or Friar Tuck, you know, because he can't pronounce the actual uh, scientific names. You know, there are some funny things, and David Cope 
is, uh, I think, is probably quite notorious for adding that kind of humour, of course, along with Spielberg. But as a complete film, yeah, it's kind of, it doesn't have the same unity and drive, I think, as, as the first film. And I, I think perhaps without sounding too scathing, I think maybe you can tell Spielberg wasn't that into it. I, I mean, am I being harsh or would, would, you, would you all agree? I think you could tell that um, he gravitated toward individual sequences, and I think the T-Rex road sequence in the first movie has a counterpart in this movie, which is the trailer sequence. So I think he looked at that, really focused on that, totally invested in every little beat of it to get it right. That's a great scene. And it was the set piece of it. And then the other thing I think that he did was maybe ask himself, uh, if this is the only time I get to do a movie with dinosaurs, uh, what do I want to see in it? And the answer was, let's get the T-Rex to the mainland and just kind of go all out. And uh, I think he scratched those that itch with that, and and everything else was um, uh, feels a little bit off, a little bit unfocused, and a little bit um, lacking in the. You don't necessarily feel as invested, I think, in the characters as you do yes. in the first one. Exactly, um, and I yeah. think maybe you know, in spite of what Michael Crichton wrote as the sequel novel, I think the average person did not get what they were expecting from a Jurassic Park sequel, which probably would have dealt with all the same characters coming back, going back to the same island, maybe picking up on the dropped shaving can and things like that, Mm -hmm. rather than (laughs) suddenly being told there's a second island and the thing that's supposed to keep the uh, dinosaurs from escaping is no longer an issue. So there were a lot of little shortcuts of... um, kind of cop-outs to try to motivate the idea for this sequel that was trying to be true to Crichton's novel because the first Jurassic Park movie was rather different than the novel. So it was a strange kind of agenda that they had to follow on it. But by the same token, had they done a sequel like that, I don't think the score would have been as different as the one we got because it was a different island, a totally different setting. That freed up John Williams to you know, come with a blank slate and, okay, now what do we do with an island where there's no fences and the animals are roaming free? You know, now he could write a score where as soon as you listen to it, you know you're you're just going to get eaten. All the, the wonder <laughs> and the magic and, and all that, the theme park, that's gone. And this is now in the tradition of the uh, prehistoric uh, movies of the past, the, yes. the kind that Ray Harryhausen did. It's more of that uh, kind of thing. The Lost World, referring to the Arthur Conan Doyle Lost World, more of that unless the um, scientific, typical Michael Crichton thing, which is that we create technology and then we think we can control it and it doesn't. It's less of that and uh, more of a island jungle adventure where you're just going to get eaten. Yes, it seems to me that possibly the most interesting angle to look at uh, The Lost World is to see it really as a giant homage to King Kong. It's possibly Spielberg's, you know, he literally homages the film and the music itself. You know, John refers to Steiner's original King Kong score in several spots of the movie, you know.
this has been um, publicly disclosed, but I could do so now. But that queue where they're going in and the raptors, it's before the raptors appear, but when they're running through, when we first get an indication that the raptors are there, the track is called the Long Grass. Oh, yes. Um, the actual manuscript title for that is Steiner in the Grass. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the very package cool. is very clearly marked on it. There's a little Max Steiner influence in some of John's score, the King Kong-esque primitive, you know, jungle rhythm that he put into that. And there are several others, nods, all throughout the score that gives uh, the last word, the feeling of an old RKO adventure film. Yeah, there's like uh, some sort of instrumentation of like dinosaur stomping that also seems to remind me of the Godzilla films too. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> yes. There's a lot of callbacks, and I've pointed out, I think, in the liner notes about um, Hatari. Oh, yeah, yes. Even to the point of, uh, you know, that where that vehicle, the Jeep with the thing, the seat that comes out the side, that's right out of that film. Um, and the typeface, which I hadn't uh, realized until I was researching The Lost World, was, uh, comes right from that film. Maybe someone should ask John if he remembers playing anything on Harry Mancini's Hatari, because, you know, besides the fact that he was playing with Hank a lot in those years, you know, late 50s, early 60s. I think there's a good chance that maybe he, if not playing, was around on the stage listening to what Hank was doing on that beautiful score for the Howard Hawks film. Well, but I think maybe we should, if we could track in, um, try instead of um, the track music from The Hunt, we should lay in the baby elephant walk. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned your, your your liner notes there, Mike, and the, there's a great uh, a paragraph here, I think, um, you know, talking about the, the kind of seminal scene in the film, you know, the, the trailer and the rescuing Sarah Q, uh, of course, and, and, the, and the glass. And you have low rumbling and dissonance used to great effect, working in contrast with the icy crackles of a slowly shattering pane of glass. I love that verbiage. And then you say, driving rhythms return as Eddie arrives building into the mercilessly nail-biting Rescuing Sarah. And that's a great way to actually sum up that cue. You know, I know we talked about it a few minutes ago, but it's such a, what a, what a showpiece, like, mercilessly nail-biting it is. Yeah, as I was saying before, I love the, the jungle grooves and the yeah. vamps that he creates throughout the whole score, especially in action scenes. He establishes these great rhythmic patterns, mm -hmm. and he goes on and on throughout the cue 
and gives them this relentless, almost really uh, inescapable uh, power because usually John doesn't write this way whenever it comes to action music. He prefers to, you know, to design the cue and especially its rhythmic patterns following the beats of the scene. Here instead, he does something very different than usual. It's absolutely engaging the way he goes really wild with these rhythms. sense it is almost very much like jazz ensemble so it would harken back to that kind of vibe where you're in a in a club in the 50s in new york doing jazz and you just sort of keep it going as long as the crowd is interesting you can kind of just riff for 10 or 20 minutes if you want and the and the percussionist just keeps going and of course he has his relatives here in the in the percussion section um working yes so uh there's <laughs> it's it's it, yes you're doing this big action score about you know uh, monsters eating you, but it's almost like a jam session. Yes. <laughs> yes, it, it's those brass punctuations, uh, and I'm sure, Rich, you, you can drown me out whenever you put music under this, but, you know... I love that. You know, it's great interplay with all the brass talking to each other. Uh, in one of the DVD interviews that he, he did for the featurettes uh, or the last word, he talked specifically about a kind of Latin percussion sound in some moments, and especially in the cue, the raptors appear, which is one of my favorites. You see this kind of more Latin vibe in the percussion. Yes. And I, I, I don't know why, and this is probably me thinking too far, but I have always thought about a relationship with West Side Story. You know, <laughs> the Raptors sounds like the the, the gang <laughs> pitting against Jeff Goldblum. And so maybe it's just my mind doing association. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
it's all the more ironic because Steven Spielberg, a couple of decades later, would direct a new version of West Side Story. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that always interested me about this score is the fact that it's it's not theme driven like the first Jurassic Park, which has these two very big important melodic themes uh, that are virtually jettisoned in favor of this more texture-based approach in The Lost World. And of course, the Alan from Fair returns in some spots, maybe like a distant memory. And is reprised in the, the traditional arrangement only in the end credits. But the main theme of the movie it's quite unique, I think, in, in John Williams' Canaan because it's not a specific melody or, or tune, but it moves by, you know, block chords over irregular rhythms. So it's almost a dance in mm. it. I don't know if it's just me, but it's so no, interesting definitely. that he wrote this overall adventure theme instead of writing more specific themes for, for sequences or characters. Well, I think you might have hit upon one of the reasons why so much music got replaced is... Williams wrote this great new theme and then only really uses it when they arrive on the island and when they leave the island. And so maybe Spielberg, you know, was watching the movie with all the music in and was like, where's the theme? So you got the hunt, the trek and the end of uh, ceiling tiles where he basically tracked in the, the theme from the concert arrangement. So that could be one of the reasons why some of these cues didn't get used is he wanted to hear the theme more in the picture. back to um, one other point about the percussion back when we were talking about the um, stage and the recording of it mm -hmm. and you asked if uh, everybody was together and we discovered that they were you do have the ability to partition of course which they probably did and also uh, to get uh, very tightly focused microphones that are going to minimize the bleed so you do have some degree of control when you mix on them and when they did this Florida theme park it would be the theme park people talking to the studio and calling in the two-inch multi-track tapes on which you would find some level of separation of all the instruments. Things like a synthesizer would be absolutely clean, but uh, the percussion group was, was probably reasonably discreet, and that's why some percussion-only tracks played in, I think maybe it was in the, like, the gift shop, and that cues with a different balance would be perceived as you move throughout that exhibit there, which would lead a discerning person to conclude that there was some vastly different alternate version of something when in fact it was just somebody going back and grabbing the um, multi-track and maybe favoring one thing over another or 
playing one instrument out of one speaker and other instruments out of another speaker. I, I haven't been there to experience it myself, so I don't know exactly what was heard, but obviously that's what happened. And they would um, listen to something and not have any point of reference about what the right take really was. So they would just grab, okay, here's a complete take. It's take one. Yeah, we'll just use that. That's really kind of how that happened. And so I think that, you know, if we had the multi-track for the whole thing, which I didn't, um, I worked from a six-track mix, probably would find that the percussion was um, highly isolated as a group. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of thing that doesn't happen anymore now in the Star Wars and Harry Potter theme parks. They uh, will give them the exact correct mixes and nothing strange can play there. But back in the 90s, it was more of a Wild West, I guess. That's because I gave them Harry Potter. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Uh, some of you mentioned briefly the electronics uh, before, and I think that this is one of the other peculiar aspects of this score, uh, namely the usage of synthesizers and electronics. And and this is another side where John went pretty wild in this, in this score in terms of you know, you know creating animal sounds, with, probably with the help of Randy Kerber on, on keyboards. The film opens with this very low, dark menacing electronic sounds out of which the creepy four-note motif appears. And this will become soon almost the main theme of the movie, the actual main theme, because it keeps returning on all throughout the score and it's labeled, I think, the island voice on the expansion and I think also on John's manuscript. And it's a wonderful idea because it's almost like a fixed idea in musical terms. It is, and I, I, I kind of identified it as a way of uh, musically depicting that the animals were in control of this island because it's ascending as opposed to the carnivore motif from Jurassic Park, which is descending. Mm -hmm. And so the animals literally are asserting for themselves nature, to quote Ian Malcolm, is finding a way. And it's, it's on the rise. Um, yes. It's not being contained anymore. It's, it's growing. And as I said, it keeps returning in many different guises and in many different textures, sometimes very low, very dark, very menacing. very loud in the brass section. Well, I mean, I think that the, um, the moment when the two T-Rexes appear together, right? Oh, yes. That, Amazing. Oh, I mean, there's that just apocalyptic brass statement of it. It's like... Yes, like for whom the bell tolls. Yes. Yeah. Kind of bells literally. It, right, exactly. It's, it's just that... <laughs> Right, yeah, the bit and the chimes do it too, right there. So, um, yes. and you, you know, your expletive. Yeah. <laughs> 
it also comes uh, towards the end. Also, I love when it, the, that rhythmic percussion continuo is going, 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 going. But it, but it's going under there too. That those four notes. Yes. Yeah, that ending of uh, the visitor in San Diego queue is absolutely stunning and, and relentless. <laughs> and, you know, the other peculiar aspect of this score, one of the many peculiar aspects of this score, uh, is also the usage of, you know, very modern, almost avant-garde techniques in terms of atonality or aleatoric writing. You know, John goes pretty wild in this regard, in this score, especially, you know, if we compare it to other blockbuster scores and also compared to the first Jurassic Park. Uh, this is a, really a major atonal score in many, many moments. Yeah, I mean, some of that shrieking high-pitchy stuff for the compies. Mm. It's crazy, know, um, yes. But, I mean, there's some tremendous woodwind playing there. I mean, how do you depict little dinosaurs? So he goes very high in the register. It's very, very clever. It's in the same way that if you want the audience to hear that high-pitched glass crackling, well, he'll take the music and go down below it so then the two things can come through. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, those kind of instincts always uh, fascinate me. They always seem to be right, you know? Yes. You mentioned uh, the synth and the score, Maurizio, and I have to say that there's a, a sound in the track reading the map that I assumed was a, a electric guitar for 25 years until I recently oh, yes. discovered it was actually uh, a keyboard with a Fender bass, uh, you know, patch applied. And it's one yeah. of my favorite <laughs> moments, actually. Oh, it's, yes. yeah, it's, it's great. So cool. <laughs> it sounds like Lalo Schifrin in there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think you picked on something before, Mike, when you were uh, making the jazz analogy, because again, here we, 
we are here in a groove, a wonderful groove, and, and, and the players are almost jamming with each other. And it's wonderful because I think this speaks also about, uh, I mean, I've said this thing so many times in this podcast, and please forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I think that John's music is so performance dependent in this regard. I mean, a lot of his music is designed in a way that it has to be played by excellent musicians and great orchestral players that can really perform anything like the LA studio players. I mean, he loves to put great parts in front of them. That is a, such a big component of the end result in his music. Absolutely. For the type of movie it is, it didn't need this sophisticated a score, really. Yeah. So I think that uh, it's gravy to be able to have it, where for me at least, I think just the, the listen is more satisfying than actually watching the movie. Oh, <laughs> mm, uh, totally. Yes. And trying to put a capper on the last word and trying to say the final word on it, we can definitely say that the music has survived a much better fate <laughs> than the <laughs> film itself. I think that we should also say that this, this is such a major work in John Williams' catalog, not only because it belongs to the beloved category of the blockbuster scores, but because it really showed uh, many different sides of the composer and his great uh, skill as an orchestrator, something a little bit more hard-edged that goes perfectly uh, within the canon of monster music and also it's a unique element in John Williams' filmography. If The Lost World is certainly a unique element in John Williams' catalog for all the reasons that we discussed today, the same case could also be made for the other 1997 Spielberg-Williams collaboration, Amistad. The film is a drama based on the true story of the revolt of a group of Africans aboard a Spanish slave ship and the subsequent legal battle held in the United States courts to determine who they belong to, and ultimately their actual status as free people, thus igniting a spark that would also lead to the U.S. Civil War. So, if The Lost World was the direct sequel to Jurassic Park, Amistad seems to have more than one point in common with the other 1993 Spielberg title, Schindler's List. And once again, John Williams answered the call writing a score like anything else he did before, featuring writing for vocal soloist, adult and children's choir, ethnic percussion, and solo instruments, together with the full symphony orchestra. Last December, La La Land Records released the expanded remastered edition of this Academy Award-nominated score, and for many of us John Williams fans and students, it was a huge discovery. This is one of John Williams' truly most ambitious film scores on many levels. 
Mike, I know you work on this now more than three years ago, so I won't ask you to go back thus far in detail, but since this is such an ambitious score, musically speaking, was also this an ambitious project to put together for you? My recollection of that is that it was um, basically a COVID project. To my shock, there's, you know, um, fuzziness about it, um, Looking, going back over it. What I remember is the surprise of finding just how long of a score it was and how much had not been released on what was a fairly substantial album. And... Uh, the job of um, figuring that out and putting it together and what to do with certain things that because some of it was a little bit repetitive and as I recall some of it was maybe updated versions of certain things one version in the film one version on the album and having to make decisions about what to put where and to make sure everything was covered so I think there was a lot of you know uh, building a ship in a bottle <laughs> quality about it being very, very careful and making sure every piece sort of fit exactly right. And it was a very delicate process, along with the normal process of checking out the performance edits and recreating them. And uh, I was just, I was very surprised about how long of a score it was, but just how amazingly done it was musically. Again, the percussion is actually very prominent. It's not in your face like The Lost World, but very prominent component in it. And the use of the chorus and particularly the solo voice it was very satisfying to, to when it finally came together, but then it waited for a while to be finished. And by that time that happened, I almost had completely forgotten all the details about it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to bring in Jason in this occasion because I think, and maybe you should also explain, Jason, because we didn't ask you previously, actually, what is actually your role as a project assistant in this John Williams releases? So what's actually your role as a project assistant? What 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 do you do? And specifically in this case of Amistad, what was your task, main tasks um, in this? He sits there and takes it when I uh, need somebody to yell at. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say uh, the project assistant title can mean so many different things and it's been completely different um, from project to project. It's actually interesting that we're talking about these two scores in particular because the 2016 uh, Jurassic Park box set was, I think, the last uh, Williams expansion uh, Mike worked on where I, I was in the loop and I was learned about it the way everyone else did on the Black Friday announcement when I, being an East Coaster, woke up and saw what had been announced overnight while I was sleeping and I, I couldn't believe it. Um, so it's interesting to have gone full circle now and the most recent one that's come out is uh, the reissue of that where I, I got to um, work with Mike pretty closely on figuring out like what we could do with bonus tracks and such. And Amistad is um, another interesting one because it's the first time I was asked to write something for the Leonard Notes. I was able to, because um, this is a score with so many alternates, um, we needed some, I lightly encouraged that there should be some sort of um, explanation for you know what they all are, how they differ from their main program versions. And I was very pleased that Mike said, why don't you give it a shot and we'll see how it goes. And uh, it ended up going in the booklet. So that's been great. But a project assistant can mean so many things on so many titles. Sometimes it's nothing more than proofreading the PDF right before it goes to the printers. Sometimes we have long phone calls where he is in the middle of sequencing a score and he just needs a, a, another voice to bounce ideas off. What do you think if I did this? What do you think if I did that? Sometimes it's collecting research. Like for Amistad, he wanted to be able to 
write, you know, what Williams 1997 was like. So I, you know, compiled uh, everything I could find about what he got up to in 1997. It's all sorts of things. And it, like I said, it varies greatly from project to project. Yeah, maybe we should give also a shout out to all the people who work behind the scenes for these specialty label releases. It's a work that involves many people to make all of this happening uh, for us film score nerds. <laughs> but I mean, it's a work that involves so many layers of responsibility and so many layers of knowledge and technical skills and, uh, you know, legal side of things. And uh, so it's important to give all these people a much credited shout out. And one of the great things of this new uh, 2CD edition of Amistad is the fact that you revealed such a staggering amount of alternate material that was written and recorded for the film, but ultimately not used in any way, in any form. For example, I was very, very impressed and, and surprised to discover that the whole prologue scene was actually scored by John Williams with a very powerful piece of music. I, I was certainly, um, yeah, I, I was certainly surprised and thrilled that right at the gate we had four minutes of music that nobody knew about. In that 2016 release that uh, shocked Jason when it was announced, I think a lot of what drove that was that everybody knew there was at least an hour of music from The Lost World that nobody had. I don't think anybody with Amistad, and certainly even more so true for Sabrina, had any idea of just how much music we didn't have was, because if something's not used and it doesn't leak out and you don't have sheet music or anything to check, or if somebody's not motivated to go find it, it can be a surprise. So to get right out the gate, the fact that the opening sequence had you know, four minutes of music that we didn't know about was amazing. And it was just uh, an indication of where the whole thing was gonna go. I think one of the best things about an expansion like this is when you restructure things chronologically, so it's not just about having all the music but presenting it in a different order, it really opens up everything William's doing because on the original album, you start with the song right away and you know, you've know you already given away 
where everything's heading towards. The payoff, yes. Yeah, the payoff is starts. So on the, the new expansion, it's it's so incredible watching all the different elements slowly build in the in the the what I call the freedom theme that the, the song is based on slowly gets introduced and just builds to this amazing climax. It's just such a different program than, than you could get before this release came together. And it's, I think it's changed a lot of people's uh, minds about the score. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think we had some discussion, Jason, about possibly opening it with Dryer Tears Africa in the same way that we opened the Lost World with the Lost World theme as kind of an overture or an introduction to it. But maybe space dictated or just the fact that we had alternate versions of it and it would have been too repetitive, or, or maybe that decision happened before you came onto it, I don't know. But I think we had some thought about that, um, and in the end decided that we didn't need it, and the discovery was that um, it wasn't as originally conceived in the score as much. And it was very much like Hymn to the Fallen and Saving Private Ryan, which was just seven or eight months later, where that Hymn to the Fallen doesn't, isn't anywhere in the body of the score at all. And it seemed like Williams was only planning on the Dryer Tears Africa for the destruction of the fortress at the end. And he went back and incorporated it in orchestrally um, into certain cues, revised certain cues to ramp up and start gradually introducing that theme um, as, the, as the score builds. Once we discovered that, it made more sense to not give the whole thing away um, right at the start of the album. You know, that's something that I think is very interesting when talking about not only these two scores, but also Saving Private Ryan, because we talked about how Spielberg took a big break after uh, Schindler's List, and he basically came back and basically made three movies back to back. The Lost World came out, and then six months later, Amistad's in theaters, and then six months later, Saving Private Ryan's in theaters. And what's really interesting is if you look at the Williams scores, the ones on the outside, The Lost World and Saving Private Ryan, have no alternates. So, you know, you got your 15-second in-credit intro for Lost World, and you've got 40-second insert for the final battle for Saving Private Ryan, and that's it. And then Amistad in the middle, a huge amount of alternates. It's one of the biggest uh, alternate sections on any of these expanded albums, I believe. And it's so interesting to think, compare these three projects with the same director and the same composer, and you've got Two of them where, you know, there isn't music asked to be rewritten. And this one where a lot of music is asked to be rewritten. Some of these alternates are completely different compositions that don't reuse any part of the original. It's just a whole different take, a whole different tone and different themes used. It's really fascinating. And there again, I think um, we were surprised. It was almost like, what, 45 minutes worth? Of, you know it's like a whole mini mini album it's like a free album you get along with the main new new album which ended up playing very nicely all, all on its own as it's sort of yes. its own experience it, it was very surprising so I, I love when things uh when when I say this 
few times now where it tells you what it's going to be mm-hmm. eventually. I mean, I know the mm-hmm. liner notes do that for me when I'm writing. I have no real idea. I have a thought of what I think it might be, and then it tells me something different. But um, Sabrina was that way with that whole second disc of the source music and the party music. I didn't see that coming, and it ended up being absolutely thrilled with that. But um, but this was one, yeah, it was like I had no idea that we would have this much and that who would have thought that it would be a two-and-a-half-hour Amistad release. Yep, and to go back to your, your point about the uh, Freedom theme and how they changed and they brought it in earlier, um, if you just were to play the original versions of all the cues, the theme wouldn't show up until the courtroom at the end. During Adam's summation would be when it's introduced in, in the verdict and then the destruction. It was only through rewrites that it now first appears when uh, Morgan Freeman's visiting John Quincy Adams, and then in the the big give us us free scene. Yes. very powerful and I think it's um, been compared sometimes to the Schindler's List scene uh, of I could have done more which is also interesting because that scene also had multiple different versions yes. written for it you had the original version on the album and then a, a sort of intermediate insert that wasn't used and then the final insert that was used and here in Amistad we have the same thing with the give us us free scene we have four different versions for the same scene. So something about these type of scenes must really make Spielberg want to tinker or want to have options or second guess himself. I'm not sure, but it's it's interesting. Yes, you definitely touched upon something there, Jason, uh, because um, I never thought about this relationship between the two scenes or the commonality between the two scenes 
of Schindler's List and Amistad. But it's totally true that there is some kind of a similarity or possibly a, a common situation there where maybe both Spielberg and Williams were not sure 100% of how to deal with the scene musically and, and maybe they wanted just to try different moods and different textures and see what would have worked better for, for the scene. Yeah, I think so. I think it's um, trying to find the right emotion for the scene, maybe. Spielberg maybe just really having specific goals in mind for the music that um, it just seemed to take longer to get on the same page, so to speak, about, you know, it's it just, it's just interesting to me that they both have multiple versions where, you know, a lot of times there's an original and a revised and that's it. In Schindler's List, we kind of had varying intensity levels of the emotion, perhaps, as the inserts went on. And then in Amistad, we have them trying two different themes to use for the scene. And, you know, in the main program, we have the first version they tried with the uh, instrumental version of Sinke's theme, followed by the one they used in the film with the really powerful choral version of the uh, Freedom theme. And then, I mean, one of my favorite tracks in the alternates is the the alternate ideas with the choral version of Sinke's theme and the really interesting instrumental version of the Freedom theme. So they really tried big and small, loud and quiet. It's funny, you'd never know it wasn't their original plan until, you know, 25 years later, we get these releases that give us these interesting insights into the creative process, you know? Yeah, and speaking of alternates... I think one of my favorites in this new edition is the Discovering the Bible alternate cue. Uh, it's a huge discovery for me because, again, the film version of the cue features a pretty straightforward presentation of Sinke's theme for flute and English horn, I believe. It's a wonderful cue, of course, but the alternate, it's all the more fascinating because John uh, stayed completely out of any thematic usage of the material of the score, and instead wrote this very almost abstract cue, uh, writing more about you know the feelings and the texture of the scene rather than um, associating any thematic elements to to what we are seeing. So it's all the more fascinating. Yeah, it's incredible, and it really shows how these releases are not always about a great new main program, and then yeah, some other ideas they tried. You know, sometimes these real amazing gems are in the bonus tracks, and this is, I agree, one of the the most interesting cues in the whole score for me. Um, like you said, the revised version they put in the film, it's fine. It it gets the job done. When you watch the scene, the way Spielberg shot it, combined with the music, really it makes you're just sucked into the scene the whole time. But the original cue, it's like just uh, another level. Um, a whole different uh, emotional component. And I would love to know why they thought it wasn't right for the scene and why it just made more sense to just kind of just use Sinke's theme for the whole way through instead. I don't know, but I'm, gl I'm glad we have the original version.
there are some great highlights and certainly Long Road to Justice, that beautiful Tim Morrison solo is one of my favorite uh, performances of, of his. It's just such a beautiful um, reading of, of that theme. such a wonderful piece and I think he never performed it or conducted it live it would be great to, to hear this live or even also the Sinke's theme would be a great piece to hear live but again we are talking about a score that as I was saying in my introduction is very ambitious he dealt with so many different elements that fused them together in such a marvelous unified way that you never have the feeling of something disjointed or going all over the place. But it has this unity, this beautiful unified wholeness to it. And I think it's also a very wholesome score in its approach, in my opinion, because you have all these very disparate elements, like I was saying, you know, the ethnic instruments and the choral component and the African elements and the Americana all working together as a unified whole, representing the spiritual humanist core of this tale. And I think John hit something very powerful and profound with his score. Yeah, one of the best examples of what you're talking about in Amistad is the John Quincy Adams theme, where it starts as pure Americana, and uh, in the, the alternate version of what is their story is perhaps the most Americana version of his theme. And then as the, the story goes on, his theme eventually gets played by the same instruments that had been playing, you know, more of the African music in the score. And that type of development is fascinating and something you don't get from the original album. We can't uh, neglect uh, the brilliant recording by Sean Murphy, which is one of the reasons these different elements can combine together so perfectly, because without uh, a great recording, it could feel like, oh, now we're leaving African percussion mode and going to Americana mode, and now we're going to vocal mode. But um, the recording is just, I think, one of his best, and it just, everything gels together perfectly. It's interesting through some of the the alternates that, that aren't new compositions, but just sort of different mixes, you can see 
that they were experimenting with trying different versions of things, trying to layer different vocals or percussion a couple times, and it's all pretty neat stuff. about yeah, the use of the choir, the choirs, because it's adult choir and children's choir. Uh, again, it's used more almost like as a, a Greek chorus throughout the narrative, as I've as I seen it. If you watch the movie, the choir always enters whenever this, there's some kind of more a commentary on what's happening and rather than just accompanying the action or, or the scenes. And it's, it's not something that John does often he prefers to accompany and enhance the action rather than doing commentary with his music. I don't know if you agree with this. Right. Well, uh, certainly the uh, the use of the low male chorus. You know, you're you're in New England and you have to try to sort of recall this other continent, this other culture. Voices of a past, I think, component comes into this when Cinque later tells John Quincy Adams that he will ask his ancestors for help and support, you know, so there's that whole element of the story and, and the score and that I love that use of the low male chorus that uh, kind of um, comes now and again throughout the score. My favorite choral pieces is the Prisoner's Song, which um, sort of reminds me of Rosewood. I think there's a little, maybe almost could be like a leftover idea. It's similar enough to me. Almost gospel, yes. Yeah. And uh, I don't think I ever asked Mike this, but that one um, ended up in the main program. And I'm so glad it did because I think it fits right in with the score. Whereas the other really interesting source piece uh, for the classical guitar um, ended up in the bonus tracks. So maybe if you remember what uh, leads you to decide where to put one versus the other at times. Um, I don't. Um, It might have been driven by the space involved. Mm-hmm. Um, since we're like 78 minutes and 77 minutes or something like that and where I felt it was best to break the sequence, I'm not sure. Or maybe just because of the the nature of it, um, that it was just a guitar, right? So somehow that didn't quite work well enough um, in the body of the score as the song did. I, 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 just, I just don't recall. Mm. But ultimately I, I would 
send it in and 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 wait for any responses and then if asked to move something i'd move it but i don't i'd have to revisit old emails to see because this was all in like summer of 2019 where i don't know where anybody's brain was it worked out great because when prisoner song comes on i get a chill every time it's perfectly placed that's probably why i probably i probably got that same chill and i thought okay i think maybe should i should try it there should also mention the beautiful vocal solos performed by mezzo-soprano Pamela Dillard on the score. And I'm very happy to mention her because in the podcast interview I did uh, last year with vocal contractor Sally Stevens, who worked with John on this project to find all the voices, including you know the soloists here, uh, told some beautiful stories about how she found Pamela Dillard and how she ended up being the voice that John and Stephen chose for, for the film. The Pamela Dillard vocals are, are really interesting, and it feels like they started with a couple spots to maybe put them, and then everyone liked what she was doing so much, they kept finding more and more places they can put her in. And I think some of the last things recorded were her really great kind of hummed versions of Sinke's theme. think Spielberg especially really liked that since he decided to open the movie with it and open the end credits with it, which hadn't been the, the original plan. You know, the, the new album reveals that Dryer Tears Africa originally started with that percussion opening, and that is how the end credits would have started. It's interesting that the sort of calmness of the going home cue to end the movie, to picture in your mind, like, what if right after that, we just went to this percussion intro? And I think Spielberg had a, a good instinct to kind of delay that a bit and use those Pamela Dillard vocals to kind of bridge the end of the movie to go into the new acapella opening of Dryer Tears Africa that, you know, we now know. It was a great decision for the movie.
trying to find some final remarks on Amistad. I think that it's very interesting that you, Jason, brought up Rosewood, actually, because it ties up very well with the 1997 theme that we are trying to have in this conversation today. Uh, as we know, Rosewood is one of the four film scores written by John Williams in 1997. Well, actually, the score was written in late 96, but the film was released in early 1997. And it's another unique element in John Williams' filmography, and it features so something very, very different than what people usually expect from John Williams. Yeah, I mean, look... Uh... Absolutely, the you know you talked about the gospel and the string writing in that is just pure Williams, and there's a bit of electric bass is used now and again. And I know that was a, a very early La La Land release, Mike, for you. I mean, it's long out of print now. I mean, it's uh, 15 years ago. But Rosewood um, having that expanded release was uh, certainly very very welcome. Yeah, and I think that there again the uh, discovery was just how much music that there was which led to the decision to make the second disc the album because there were so many things that were unique to that. Because once we assembled the score, as it was constructed for the movie, it was 76 minutes. So um, with something like 50 minutes being um, not on the album. So I think that there, again, was a big surprise at just how much there was. Yeah, we have so many different elements in this score. We have the rustic, folksy, Americana writing, very much in line with what John did also on a film like The River or also in The Missouri Breaks. Uh, and then we have beautiful instrumental solos like the beautiful French horn uh, solos by Jim Thatcher or the harmonica by Tommy Morgan. And then we have the spirituals, you know, the gospel songs mm -hmm. in, for which John wrote both music and lyrics. Yeah. And I think when we discussed um, Sabrina, I think it was that we talked about that mid-90s period of the wide variety of projects that Williams got to do. Even after leaving the Boston Pops while he con con uh, continued his association there, he left the Boston Pops and Spielberg took a break and Star Wars took a break. And, um, you know, he had the opportunity to do these other uh, projects. And what a coup for John Singleton to ultimately get him, even though it was a replacement score. He was a real fanboy, um, wasn't he? Yes, I remember his, yeah. his notes were really gushing about, yes. <laughs> was it Star Wars was really his kind of go-to soundtrack as a kid, wasn't it? Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So and I miss I missed that I missed that when uh, you just never knew what uh, next what the next Williams project would be. We had such a great variety because that followed I think like Sleepers and and then Sabrina and Nixon and you know mm -hmm. um, it was it was a very fertile time and there was concert work coming and you know it was it was it was a really really good uh, time to be following what the maestro was doing.
1997 also saw Seven Years in Tibet. Again, another completely different project from what people maybe were expecting from him. A new director he was working with for the first time, the first and only time, Jean-Jacques Hanot, uh, who used to work with James Horner, but this time went to John Williams for this beautiful lyrical score. Yeah, and you had Yo-Yo Ma on it, right? And, yes. Uh, yes. And they were tremendous friends and collaborators. So yeah, a very, very fertile time, yeah. And we can't forget that 1997 is the year that started with the special edition of the Star Wars films. It wasn't, it wasn't just the movies. Also, all throughout the year, Williams' concerts, he was conducting all kinds of Star Wars music again. It was a big year. Four new scores and a resurgence of Star Wars popularity. You know, the popularity of Star Wars, of the original movies kind of peaked in this year and led to, you know, really like, let's make these prequel movies, you know? That's right. That, that's true. Yeah, they that's totally true. tested the waters with those, absolutely. Yeah. And I think also that the return of Star Wars was very important for John Williams' career as well, because together with the special editions, uh, we all knew that John was about to return to the galaxy far, far away uh, with the Star Wars prequels trilogy. We all knew that he was signed to work on these films and to return to work with George Lucas and writing new Star Wars music for the first time in years. And this was rendered all the more fascinating because of all the varied and different projects he worked on throughout the 90s. Yeah, and I think uh, if you can look at the action music in the uh, the Star Wars prequels, and so different from the original uh, Star Wars trilogy action music, and you have to wonder if scores like Jurassic Park and The Lost World kind of paved the way for the evolution in his his action sound. I think really the episode one, The Phantom Menace, uh, really is a line of demarcation on many, many fronts, certainly with the, uh, the music business and the fan community and the importance and prevalence of the internet in all of our lives. I think to me that all seems to be associated with the return of Star Wars in 99, that we really kind of did turn a corner in, on many, many levels that year. And then projects like um, Stepmom and The Patriot aside, once we hit The Phantom Menace, we by and large got Williams entirely focused on Star Wars, Harry Potter, and Sven Spielberg. And Gone were this kind of constant flow of unique, different, various projects working for other directors. And, you know, that era as well, you know, late 90s, uh, early 2000s was also, you know, when you think back to the variety, I mean, obviously the albums were solid as well, but there was also 
yeah, as as Mike was saying, the the variety and the and the different projects. He did some some new albums as well, you know, with the LSO for Sony, which was very welcome because they, they, you know, hadn't been done for some years. I think Y2K actually happened, and I can only hope that there's viewers who are young enough to not know what that means who are listening. <laughs> but for those of us who all thought our computers were just going to fry and freeze up, um, it didn't happen quite that way. But I think we actually did have a big major polar shift that happened when we turned the millennium. Yes. Just in the way that we think about information rather than anything that they were saying was going to happen, that your banks were going to crash and, and all that. It happened in a different form. We all definitely had to have a shift of just how we think about the idea of information. Mm-hmm. And yeah. tying this back to John Williams, uh, I was thinking actually that John Williams's music has always been a constant in my life, and, and I think it's the same for you guys. You know, His music has marked the passage of time for, for, for all these years, and it's quite surprising and all the more marvelous to think that we are now in 2023, and the maestro is almost 92, but still going strong. He had a new score this year, you know, a new Indiana Jones film, and he's about to go to Japan for the first time in 30 years. <laughs> uh, on, on Monday, next Monday, via Hawaii. Wow, incredible. Wow. And, I mean, he looks so great, so spry, so energetic. I mean, I was listening a couple of days ago to the Tanglewood film night uh, broadcast and it, even if he was just audio he sounded so joyous and, and youthful uh, it's really incredible it's the, the level of energy that he still displays is marvelous and I think Jason you were there in person to attend that concert right yeah other than when he reaches out his hand to come up and down the rostrum he um you would never guess he's 91 I mean, he, he just looks so much younger than uh, people I know 20 years younger than him. No, I mean, look, just last month I saw him have a lightsaber duel with Gustavo yeah. Dudamel. So it's like, <laughs> I think he's okay. He's wearing out people half his age is what's going on. So. And in addition to appearing, you know, conducting concerts all over the world, it's quite staggering to think that he's, his pencil is still going on. I mean, uh, as I said, he wrote a new Indiana Jones score this year, and he's also writing a piano concerto. I'm eagerly waiting for that. And it looks like he, his pencil doesn't want to stop. <laughs> now, busy on at least three things right now he's doing. So writing. Wow, so. incredible, mm-hmm. amazing. Speaking about the future, Mike, I know that we always try to pull out information from you, <laughs> and maybe you are running out of ways of... <laughs> Uh, dodging the bullets, so to speak. <laughs> but is there something that you can tell us about, that you can tell fans about what to expect in the coming months? Um, when we were talking about the Jurassic Park collection that came out in 2016, I was reflecting on how relatively easy things were to get done back then. And <laughs> since then, in recent years, even COVID notwithstanding, it seems like everything takes longer and there's more administration and there's more headaches and there's more waiting and there's more time involved because you mentioned the Black Friday announcement, Jason, and I remembered that I was traveling, was driving to the East Coast um, and then back and was in Chicago to see E.T. with the Chicago Symphony that Thanksgiving weekend and spent Thanksgiving Day with friends in Missouri and then drove back and I think I got here the day before this big Amblin art gallery show that Taylor Wright and Creature Features was doing that I had a role in. And uh, and just how easy, relatively easy things were. And even though the next year 
was all about Close Encounters and E.T. There were some hiccups with them, but it's like, but most, for the most part, they went well and got done on time. And, you know, when I think in 2017 that E.T. and Close Encounters and Titanic and Dr. Doolittle, they all got done. (laughs) And these were not small projects. Um, That was a huge So so when I think about what's happened since, and uh, I need... Jason and and you guys who've also helped with you know doing the research and doing brilliant things like getting into the Sydney Sydney Sachs papers and getting us London musician rosters and things like that for Fiddler on the Roof which we never thought we'd have and putting together the you know what concerts were going on and when Williams played this or that with in Boston or elsewhere that's all become terribly important because the time is so much less now it seems everything takes longer so uh, including the things that have currently got going, where I just don't know at, the, at this exact moment that we're talking um, mid to late August, if uh, we'll make it out this year or not. It's up to the powers that be and this admin. So there's certainly some releases coming that are really going to be special to people. There's one that I think I've alluded to in the past that's a non-Williams project that's one of the, one of the biggest things that I've done. Um, that's finally across the finish line and is on track for end of this year, but just barely. I, I think it's going to make it. I think we just got another wire, but so so I don't know at this moment if um, it's safe to even say that what's coming, other than that there are some releases that are going to be very very special to people. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a great, a great actually a great tease. I mean, uh, a great I know tease. That, yes, that that you are as busy as ever. Uh, again, I think there are so many things that you do and that people maybe are not aware, like your involvement in life to picture concerts. Like it's, it's another thing that it's a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah, I've got that something on that front going on right now, which I'm very excited to be uh, doing. And uh, But I think that gradually, and I'm not just talking about John Williams, but gradually in recent weeks, things have started to move and get a little further along to come across the finish line. So there's, I'm just grateful that there, there's no real shortage of releases to put out. It's just, it feels like it all takes longer and mm-hmm. is more involved than it used to be. There's a lot more paperwork, really, to use a generic term. Weeks went by recently where it was, the days were entirely taken up by administration. Mm-hmm. I think I must might, might have gone two or three weeks without... Um, working with music at all mm. and then when I finally got back to it it was joyous because oh my goodness <laughs> it just does what I tell it to and it doesn't talk back and <laughs> and, and I, I move through the day and I feel like I've gotten something done rather than just leaving voicemails and sending emails and getting no response and, and making out spreadsheets and, and filling out forms and you know uh, so it feels good so now things are gradually getting back to normal now that some of the big larger ones are uh getting into the home stretch. Yeah, yeah, maybe we should also mention that these aren't the easiest or most relaxed days in Hollywood in general, given, you know, the double strike going on and what is the impact of this kind of situations have also on, you know, normal, regular work for, for people like that maybe are not associated with the guilds, but, you know, have somehow their work affected in some one, in one way or another. Yeah, it, de- it definitely affects the whole community, really, because... Um, the economy of the whole region is affected by it. And all of the um, types of services that the movie business engages, whether it's um, cleaners or 
caterers or people who repair clothing or um, yeah. hardware stores like or lumber yards, whatever. All everybody's affected by it. There's that, and then just the slowdown of production and um, a lot of people. You know, you you take it for granted. You think all these people are super super wealthy, but you know, there's a lot of actors and writers who are driving Uber to um, you know to support. Wow families in their homes so make hands and meets yes. um so it, it is a business it's, it's still an industry town it's a company town you know no different from pittsburgh being a steel town or detroit once being the you know auto making town it's an industry town so um when it's not working everybody does feel it and then people at studios if you get them on the phone if they are at work that day they've had a drive through a picket line so, um, you know, that, that wears on you after a while. And sometimes it's as uh, routine a thing as me having to bring a box of tapes back to a studio. But I have to drive across a, a picket line to do it. And then you feel for them. This is their, their livelihood, you know. So it's not a hobby. This is their livelihood. This is their job. It just, it just has had an impact on everything and everybody. And you've had downsizing. You've had your departments being shortened. You've had m- movies not doing well. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, people's, people are having to take more on and they're working nights and they're working weekends and they're working at home. And it, there's a cumulative effect, certainly, to all of that. So I can kind of understand when things do slow down. But... Um, They've also seemed to have gotten more complex, where I have to do more explaining of things to people, whereas before it seemed like that administrative side just moved, got through more quickly than it does now. It is what it is, and you just you just have to you just have to step up and realize that it's worth it, and just uh, know your stuff and supply the right information and do what you can to make it easy for people, and just uh, and it, treat it like um, the minute hand on a clock, on an analog clock. You you don't see it move, but it does move. Eventually, it gets around to the next hour. I still believe that, you know, everything we want to see happen will eventually happen. It's just, uh, you know, um, if the last few years are any indication, it's just, it's it happens, but it happens slowly. slowly. So, um, right. okay. well, know, it does, doesn't, mean that, doesn't mean that the people who care have stopped wanting it and have stopped working towards it. These specialty label releases are minor miracles that uh, they... They happen, and uh, you know, from assisting Mike now for seven years or so, he's so right that um, it has gotten slower recently. And it's it's not on the music side. You know, he gets this great elements, greatly preserved. He makes a great new album, and then the the amount of paperwork after that uh, mm, is approvals incomprehensible to 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 people online whinging about the the minor flaws they perceive. <laughs> No, we're so thankful. I mean, you know, look, the 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 record labels do pour a lot of money into these, and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously they're not cheap, but we're uh, yeah. I mean, certainly as a community, uh, I know everyone's very grateful, and it's it's about also getting the word out to even just the general public. It's it's kind of one of um, something you know we've we've enjoyed to do over these past few years, just uh, kind of breaking that barrier, you know, to the the mass audience, you know, getting the the music on, you know, the, the radio stations, getting people, so many people I know, uh, you know, just don't, I think it's just, it's just the way it is. It's almost like a bubble. The film music society has a kind of bubble, whereas a lot of people just don't realize the music's out there. It's been tough to, look, it's tough to sell new music to people um, or get them interested. And part of that is the music itself. Yeah, you want to try to 
always trying to broaden the audience so that we're not, say, for example, selling The Lost World just to people who purchased it in 2016. You do what you, whatever we can think of to try to get some new people aware of this. It's just, uh, it's just, it's just, uh, just more and more challenging. But look, everybody plays a role, including people who like to uh, vent on message boards, because you know, if you've ever seen a flock of geese flying in formation, there's a reason for it. There's an aerodynamic reason for it that the goose in the front does all the work, and everybody else gradually, as you move further back, like when you watch a bicycle race, there's a slipstream, and it's easier at the back than it is at the front. And the reason why the geese at the back honk that way is to encourage the guy in front to keep going, keep going, keep going. So without those geese honking in the back, you know, we can't keep going. So we, we need that. You know, we need, uh, we need that noise in the background to encourage us to keep going. Because without those people, we have nobody to sell to. So in there, where, where would we be? That's a good analogy. It, it, would, it, would, be, it would be the four of us, you know. Wanting a score and listening to it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very lonely. And I think this is a good way to, uh, you know, tying up the conversation we are having today, because uh, it gives us a positive outlook on the future. And as you just said, Mike, you know, uh, the mantra has to be: be patient, be strong, and everything will come out sooner or later. And let's enjoy the fruits of your work, and let's enjoy what we have at the time. Let's keep it being hopeful for the future. And I just uh, hold on to gratitude, and I think we really all should, that we get to have anything to do with this. I know somebody who once said um, that there are men who work harder for their money in dustier places. So I try to hold on to gratitude about, even with all the frustrations and the aggravation and the anxiety that can come with it, I'm very, very grateful to actually get to do what I do at all. And we are also very much grateful to you, Mike, for all the hard work that you put into these wonderful releases and, uh, you know, all the fan community always looks at your work as a benchmark for how these things should be done, always. And I think this is a great way to end our conversation today, guys. It was truly an amazing time spent together. Yeah. So thank you, Mike, again for your time today. You're quite welcome, as always. This is always uh, so good. This is this puts fuel in the tank. Likewise, Mike. And, yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you, Jason. You have been a wonderful guest. Thanks, Jason. Thank you very much. And Jason, you can't now uh, post about this podcast and list all of the points that you thought were so brilliant and you have to let somebody else do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Maurizio. And um, uh, thank we'll look you, forward Tim. to... Thank you speaking uh, all together very soon. Me too. Yes, absolutely. I'm looking forward to talk together with all of you very soon. And let's remember what we talk about today. Jurassic Park, The Lost World, 2CD, Remastered and Expanded Edition, and Amistad, Remastered and Expanded Edition, 2CD set, both available at lalalandrecords.com. Thank you everyone for listening and check thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com soon for more amazing announcements and new podcast episodes. Mm-hmm.